Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Dialogue Box with me, Chris Light, my co-host Gwen Frey. How you doing, Gwen? I'm doing good, man. And we have Joe Marabella today, the developer of Tower of Guns. How you doing, Joe? Fine. How are you? Good, thank you, man. Just moved, hence the break in shows for those who were dying for their hit of Dialogue Box. That's why I've moved yet again. Jo- the- Alright, so the Boston game scene is weird because we're we have a quite a surprising number of indie devs, but we never really hang out because we're all really introverted. But every now and then, I I do run into Joe, and I always have really interesting conversations. I uh, I love what Joe does. It's weird that we're so close and we like rarely ever hang out, man. Well, well I mean, it okay to be honest. This, this this Boston Transit and being way outside the city makes me feel like I'm always ostracized, uh, like kind of like kind of pushed out there. Like, I wish I were in the city more so I could see all you all. It's not just you. It's like the entire Boston scene I don't get to see very often. Nah, dude. Like, none of us really hang out. Even, I'm basically neighbors with some of these guys and we never hang out. Really? Oh. But, yeah, like, like I don't, yeah, whatever. That's boring. But I, I think, uh, especially because you've launched an entire game. Uh, basically, one time I was talking to you and you were working on Tower of Guns, and the next time I was talking to you and you were working on Mother Gunship, and then you were like, yeah, that game's out, Yeah, <laughs> which is crazy. And each one of those was a good two and a half, three years. Yeah, there's some exciting stories, but, you know, on your side, you're doing the same stuff, you know, working on, on solo, pro- well, I guess mostly solo projects now at this point, so you get it. The, the... Yeah, I do get it. I get it, especially because. So let's let's back up a bit. Let's talk about for the audience. Like you, you started out working on Tower of Guns, and if I recall, that was how how did that happen? Was that a solo project? Tower of Guns was a solo project. Okay, so I have to I back up a little bit and give you the the history, if you want, of Ooh, how yes, that please. started. So I I've been in games for geez since like two thousand five. I've been working professionally, and I worked in in the Boston area. Um, and I worked on Titan Quest first, um, and then uh, the expansion pack for that. And then I went over to a little studio named 38 Studios, uh, where I worked for like oh, five yeah. years on this MMO that was uh, it was a huge project, uh, like 300 people working at that studio between the MMO and the uh, action RPG that came out. Uh, they released uh, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, right, which is like the fact that that game got, got made and released is, is a huge accomplishment because that studio that was working on that with us... Uh, they had had some rocky times, and that game had been rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt over and over again. Um, Dude, yeah. we could do an entire podcast on just that, especially because Chris Light, do you know all about that? Like, well, the state? I'm vaguely like, aware, just through it, you know, I was, I don't think, I think I was still working in a video game shop at the time that came out. Uh, but I remember reading all about how it had taken a lot like this game had been a long time in the making when it finally came out right so i i had nothing to do with that i was on the mmo team (laughs) but Ah. uh, the mmo team was working on the same lore same ip uh and we've been working for about the same amount of time on on uh basically a a world of warcraft-ish kind of clone very traditional in its format with a couple of twists but uh that studio then went like disastrously bankrupt uh, oh no! Like so, the it was like like oh in the news there was an FBI investigation. It was uh, catastrophic. Um, and I, when I started working at Thirty Eight Studios in two thousand, I think it was two thousand seven, uh, maybe two thousand eight. When I first started there, I was I even said to myself I was like okay this is because there were some celebrity names involved. Um, yes. And yeah, it was uh, the the uh, one of the pitchers from the Red Sox. Uh, Bob Salvatore, who was a, a New York Times bestseller, and then Todd McFarlane, who was the only one I had actually heard of at the time. Um, and I was like, oh, I could meet Todd McFarlane. That'd be awesome. He's the guy who did Spawn. So <laughs> yeah. I was like, that'd be cool. Right. Uh, that's Yeah, I was, I was like, maybe I'll work there for a couple months and get to meet Todd, and then I'll move on somewhere else. Because I really didn't think it was... I don't really know if it was going to pan out to a longer job. But uh, uh, when I started working there, I just started... Uh, dating someone and I was like I kind of want to see where this dating relationship goes so maybe I'll see where this job goes at the same time and and then in a couple months I'll reevaluate mm. like that was literally my mindset like because I was ready to move on from Iron Lore and I thought I was going to move out west to, to some studio out west and kind of finally see what California would like, was like to live in um, and then that like one or two month trial at 38 Studios kind of turned into five and a half years six years oh uh, and and then I ended up marrying the person I was dating. So hey, that hey. worked out. Yeah, I was so, going to ask, but then yes. I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't. But no, I was hoping. No, no. So were things? If you weren't 
in love with a girl, would you have stayed as long, you think? I don't know, because the team was really interesting, and the project was really, like, filled with a lot of cool problems, and they were constantly throwing new kinds of things at me. So that's why this is kind of related to Tower Guns, because hmm. throughout my, my six years or five and a half years there, I was learning how to make a game kind of on my own. Uh, I mean, it was 300 people on that project. There was a lot of people, and I was only one small cog in that machine, but I was also, like... They were... They were definitely like throwing a lot of money and trying to build a studio out of nothing. And it was definitely headed, that studio was headed by people with no idea what they were doing. Literally like a famous baseball player. Oh, yeah. And but... I know like their animators came from film and stuff. And I, everybody was super, ta they had money and they got top talent, but from kind of lots of different industries and stuff. It was super weird. Well, right? that's the reputation, but it's actually, it was not that bad. Like Kurt didn't do anything with the game at all. He, that was the, the one thing about Kurt and Kurt is all filled with all sorts of controversy. Uh, but... Kurt admitted right up that he didn't know how to make a game and he didn't know what he was doing. And so he was like, I'm going to find other people. So yeah. I can't comment on the top management and the people running the business. But once you get down to the, the studio manager and that level below, people knew what they were doing. Uh, there was hmm. one or two people who came from film for animation, um, super talented. But then there were people who had worked for 15 years on MMOs. Like there were, in fact, they hired a lot of people who had worked on EverQuest, a lot of people who had worked on... Um, there were some people who had worked on WoW, there were some people who had worked on EverQuest, there were some people who had worked on Vanguard and Planetside, and a lot of, a lot of Sony MMO-type stuff. But, uh, oh, I, the animation team was actually probably the most MMO-experienced. Um, yeah. yeah, it was, you know, there was, there was, yeah, one guy from film, but you can't say that the entire department was <laughs> I'm from. sorry. Well, I, I sat next to Pete the Cat for years, so I've got, I've definitely seen this through a very different lens. And, and he did not have a great time there, I think. So maybe I've got, like, a different yeah. side of the story. Pete there. is awesome, but he also came in at the last, like, month or so. Uh, but yeah. the, the tech was just never, never coming along as fast as we wanted. It was really a shame. Um, the, so it was like a tech problem, you think? Yeah, we were starting to figure out the environment side was looking pretty good. We were probably the least MMO experienced on the environment side, uh, but we had an awesome lead who was able to kind of like sort us out and kind of get us rolling. And she, Your role was tech artist or environment artist? Uh, eventually it was tech artist. Uh, eventually it was senior tech artist, but it was nothing to do with animation. It was entirely on the environment side and the material and shader side. Um, and on, I guess, the like cutscenes animatic side a little bit. Hmm. But that was more so in setting up the base technology and then letting um, the tech animators roll with it. Um, yeah. And when you got into the industry, did you get in as an environment artist? That's, or as a tech I got artist? In as a, right out the I gate? got in as a weapon artist. Um, <laughs> oh, so on Titan Quest, I made something like 600 little weapons. Like, I was just rolling uh -huh. through them. That was a Diablo clone, and someone had to make all the weapons, and that was me. <laughs> and then, nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then I went from that to being like a character artist. I did a few character things on the expansion pack, um, some monsters and some NPCs and stuff. And that was kind of the way that my life was being groomed, I guess, towards like uh, the character artists at Iron Lord took me under wing. Um, and then they were the reasons I got hired at 38 because one of them went over to 38 and was like, hey, come work with me. And you were a character artist initially at 38? Uh, no, at 38, it was so early that nobody really had roles. We just knew there was going to be, this person was going to be a character person, but we didn't have any environment people really. And then... There was a point in 38 where they sat me down, they pulled me into a meeting, and they were like, you're kind of a weird hybrid, Joe. Which way do you want to go? Do you want to go environment or tech? Because we're making a split now. And this was about maybe three months in or something like that. And uh, and th there's a lot of complicated reasons, but I was like, you know, I really want to explore the environment side of this. There's some really interesting problems here. Um, All right. So you were, uh, what kind of engine were they using? Were they Unreal or were they custom? They were Unreal 3. And that uh, oh, okay. that involved a lot of learning. But like like I said, the, the job basically trained me to make an Unreal 3 game on my own. So when that studio closed, yeah. you know, like fast forward five years and me having gone more and more and more technical throughout my five years there, uh, when that studio closed, I was like, well, I can I can make a game that, that makes someone go bankrupt. I can do that well. So... <laughs> Awesome. Um, like, yo, Special give me money. Skills. Give me money. We could all do this. Right. Well, also, <laughs> so I had, I had been wanting to go indie for years. I had been wanting to go indie for, oh, I don't know, like three or four years. And my wife and I had been saving up money with the idea of me someday trying it. And we, we're, we're very frugal people. We don't really spend money either. So it's like, okay, look, she's got a good job now. She's she's able to support us both. I've, we've got a little bit of a buffer built up. We can make this last for a little while. When 38 closed, it was kind of like the catalyst. I feel real bad because that studio shut down and so many people were in really rough spots. They were like, they need to scramble to find a job. There were people who had, you know, like there's one person whose wife was uh, scheduled to, to, to give birth the, uh, the day our insurance was going to run out. 
Um, oh, it's there were some really there's there's people who are stuck with two mortgages because of a weird situation where 30 Studios was relocated from Massachusetts to Rhode Island, and they said they bought out the mortgages from us, but they didn't. I don't. I was gonna say I don't. I was hoping we would go into that because a lot of the controversy about 38 is that move, that, the fact that Rhode Island, the government of Rhode Island, paid to move the studio, uh, and get, invested a shit ton in the studio, and then the studio moved and then immediately closed oh and cashed God, out. Oh God! Yes, I remember. All, I remember reading about all of this. Yeah, I wouldn't say that they cashed out. <laughs> they spent a lot of money in that. Well, but there was. Yeah, man. There was. There was so there many. There was no I cash going out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, cashing out assumes that there's some cash to be yeah. cashed out. Uh, fair, yeah. Well, it depends on who you talk to. The people of Rhode Island are not very pleased. No, and they shouldn't be. Um, but there were multiple things going on. So I don't know very much about the biz side of that. Um, I didn't even have any kind of business sense built up back then, and I've learned mm-hmm. a lot since then about just running a business in general and how complicated it is, especially when you're talking about 300 people. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that... Uh, there are a lot of things going on there that, like, I think that people need to be angry about that they weren't angry about. Like, the like some of the money that was supposed to go to that studio never got to it because it was, one, diverted immediately. You're talking, like, millions of dollars diverted into escrow funds to pay for the, the, the paying back for the loan, uh, like, right away, which is really weird. That's like a bank giving you money to buy a house and then saying, oh, by the way, we're only going to give you half of that because the rest of that's going to go hmm. into a bank account to then pay back what you owe us. And was this, is this, all this information was all confirmed and like out there and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So most of this stuff is public domain at this point, um, I think. Uh, But some of it's not. Like, and some of this is just rumors. So I can't really confirm this this next part. But like, apparently there was some people who were working on the build out of the building, like actually like uh, renovating the inside of this old Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, building to actually be offices for Mm. us. And uh, apparently during the day, people were, were, construction workers were leaving the office and going over to the nightclub of uh, one of the people who was on the economic development board and retrof- and like uh, renovating that instead on wow. the dime that was meant to be paid for this, this studio. So it's like really shady stuff. And I can't confirm a lot of this stuff, but I got the impression that, you know, yeah, some of this you could, you could lay on the feet of 38 Studios and then some of it you could lay on the fact that it feels like Rhode Island may be run by a bunch of criminals, but I'm not really sure. Uh, all conjecture and all uh, conjecture. not confirmed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it, felt, it certainly uh, felt like that from my perspective, and yeah. you know, nobody came away from that. The people of Rhode Island came away from that feeling burned. The people of 38 Studios felt like they were burned. Uh, like the founders, the founders of the company felt like they were burned. I'm sure Kurt felt like he was burned, but like, you know, you can... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Kurt's a controversial yeah, figure they, anyway, but... Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a huge thing in this area because it was such a large number of people. And then there was the massive move of moving all these people from Massachusetts to Rhode Island and then almost immediately laying them off. And just like the disruption to all those people's lives was incredible. Yeah, it was super um, incredible. And that was, we were there for about a year. You, yeah. yeah, you were pretty, uh, like, I, I mean, I, I empathize obviously strongly with this story. With Like you, you had this layoff, you'd always kind of plan to go indie. All of a sudden it's like, well, here we go. Right. It's real. Oh, and my, like, yeah. oh yeah. So like to get a little bit more into how, I don't want to say how good my situation was, but like my wife and I, like instead of moving to Rhode Island, we moved to this little town in Massachusetts that was halfway between the two cities. So like we were never, we never had to deal with the Rhode Island RV. We never had to really change our state of residency. We never like, so we were, we like really lucked out. Um, cause I was like mm-hmm. able to commute from right across the border and, uh, and when 38 studios closed, it's like, I was in a position where it's like, okay, I'm, we're in a place that still is okay for my wife to commute from. We, we didn't put all our eggs in one basket where we can do this, this indie thing. And there's a lot of other people in the area who suddenly need a lot of jobs. So maybe I shouldn't be competing with them. Maybe like, like maybe they should go out and see if they can get jobs at harmonics or rational or turbine or one of the other local studios, um, or move most of them moved. Um, yeah, but like, um, but yeah, so like that was the catalyst for me going to work on tower guns, like kind of knowing enough to make a game on my own mostly. And, um, and then being in a position where suddenly I was like thrust into this, like, well, maybe I don't want to go work for a large studio again. Maybe I want to kind of do something on my own, something a little bit more small scale, something where if it's going to succeed or fail, it's based off of me, not based Mm -hmm. off of, um, the whim of some, um, governor so yeah 
fucking love this story, man. This is great. So, okay. So now you're, you're solo deaf. You, how long did you, when you started, how long did you think it would take? Did you know you were going to make Tower of Guns immediately? Did you already have like a prototype in mind when you, when the layoff happened or? No, I didn't really have a prototype or, in mind. I had been kind of like thinking about what I might make, but I was like, I had no idea. Like I was like, maybe I'll make a puzzle platformer. No, that was a bad idea. Maybe I'll make a, a golf clone. No, that's a bad idea. You know, like I was just burning through ideas because that's kind of like what I do I'll burn through a bunch of ideas and then eventually something I'll just realize I've worked on for a month or two and that becomes a game um, yeah. and with Tower of Guns after I kind of settled a little bit on on like okay I've always wanted to work on a first person shooter so like that kind of settled in my brain a little bit after a little while and then uh, I had kind of run through a bunch of like through, through all my technicalness at 38 Studios I'd never messed that much with Unreal Script so once I kind of began to get comfortable with Unreal Script I began realizing the kind of thing I wanted to make and kind of testing to see whether or not I could make a bullet hell type game. Uh, I was actually making a test of a cannon just firing at the player and I showed it to a friend of mine. How did this work out? This is a long time ago. Um, and I, there was a bug in the game that caused there to be 10 times the number of bullets firing at like tenth, uh, one tenth of the speed. And at that moment, the friend of mine was like, you know, I had a lot of fun dodging all those bullets. It was like I was dancing. And like, that was when things started to click for me. That was like, okay, I'm going to make a bullet hell first person shooter with really slow bullets, which sounds terrible on paper, but actually ends up being kind of fun. And that's, that, Dude. that was the beginning of Tower Guns. Sweet. And so what, what kind of disc cycle were you talking here? So you had the idea, how long were you working on it? When did you know it was like a, cause it, it did quite well. Like it got press and rounds and you made a name for yourself with that game, right? Uh, thanks. I mean, it, it did well for a solo developer i mean it's not like it well, it's not like it made bajillions and bajillions of dollars it's like i'm not like you know like uh jonathan blow levels of fame or or whatever or you know edmund m type type bags of money but like uh well, it, the m was think, the go-to for that <laughs> it was i think because you were yeah. the solo dev that's local so oh. <laughs> you were the one that we like because you i remember reading about it being a big deal at pax at one point right like wasn't it discovered at a pax or something or am i crazy uh, no well it was picked up by PAX Penny Arcade's report. They had a they had a news section for a little while there that they've got rid of since then. Um, but it was actually at E3 that I was showing it as part of the Indiecade. And uh, I can tell you the name of the reporter, too. It was Andrew Groen, who went on to go do the the um, the Eve history book. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he was doing he was reporting for for the Penny Arcade report. And he came by and was like, wow, this is a lot of crazy fun. I like this. And he did something. And then within hours, uh, a bunch of other news outlets were coming by to check it out too. Um, and that was, it cool. was a really cool, like, like snowball effect. And I kind of witnessed it happen. Like right, just while I was standing there, uh, showing off the game to people, like all of a sudden there was more and more and more and more people just coming by to check it out. Um, but it was at E3. And then I, I showed it again at, or yeah, I showed it at PAX a couple months later. Um, but, uh, I see. Yeah, I think it was like 2013 that would have been, maybe. Wow, man, okay. ancient history at this point. Yeah, I know. Like, we should get to something more current soon so that you're like, it's easier to talk about stuff that's more recent. But it's the, true. um, but yeah, okay, so you, you were, you didn't spend too long on that then, like two years maybe? I spent 3,850 hours, 0.5 hours on that game. <laughs> I am not joking. Three thousand eight hundred and fifty hours, uh, and I know that because I track my time obsessively in, in Toggle, um, and oh, uh, yes. um, I actually wrote an article on it uh, for uh, Gama Sutra a few years ago. And then, you know, since release, I probably spent an additional like five or six hundred hours, but I didn't track that because the novelty mm -hmm. wore off of time tracking. You know, <laughs> I think I think another reason why I I know so much about Tower of Guns and why I've, I've been following you is because your GDC talk was phenomenal. The one about um, the kind of that time in between Tower of Guns and the next thing when you didn't know what to do. Thank you. Um, Thanks. You gave that talk and it just resonated with me so much. Like, cause it, it was true. I know that feeling. I think everybody knows that feeling where you're like, I had a game. It did pretty well. Now I should probably do another thing. Shit. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. That uh, describes uh, the entire situation very well. And that's pretty much what that talk was about. <laughs> yeah. And so how long was it between, like, walk me through what happened between the inception of Mother Gunship and Tower of Guns. Like, what, what was the process? Like, what, what, what happened? Uh, a lot of disasters is what happened. I, I went from working on Tower of Guns and feeling like I had a clear vision. There's something to be said for, like, knowing what you're building. Even mm. if you're not sure if it'll do well, even if you're not sure if it's, if it's what you should be working on, active movement and forward momentum does a lot to just stave away depression. And um, the second that that 
is completed, uh, I can totally understand why people get kind of sad when a project is done. It's because you kind of feel like um, you kind of feel like a piece of you is kind of like taken away, and is is basically there's this vacuum now, and you don't know what to fill it with. And so I spent a long time trying to find different shaped prototypes to fit into that vacuum, into that weird prototype shaped hole that I had inside of me. So it's like, wow, that was a really weird sentence. But anyway. Um, <laughs> that's a good one, though. It's descriptive. Uh, I followed you. <laughs> yeah, so I tried all sorts of different prototypes. I tried little, like, RTS-type games. I tried other kinds of first-person shooters. I tried, uh, like, little puzzle games. I made a little, I made another puzzle platformer. I mean, I made a bunch of different kinds of, of uh, prototypes. And they were largely terrible, but that's okay because I was kind of feeling through different things. But... Then it went from being like spending a couple of months on stuff to spending almost a full year on this stuff. And I was like, I've done nothing. And then it began feeling more pressure and more and more pressure. And my wife was pregnant at the time. And I was like, I need to do something before my, my kid is born because then I'm going to feel really like, like I'm like, I'm not going to have time to like work on anything when there's a kid being born because I'm going to need to focus on, on being a dad. And mm -hmm. there was this weird kind of like end point in my brain. And I ended up working on a bunch of different kinds of projects and none of them really stuck. And it kind of uh, was a, a year of feeling like a failure. Um, but yeah, especially and your wife is pregnant, so that can't be. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a new vector of stress. That's a stress vector. It was definitely a stress vector. And it was interesting, too, because like I had a couple ideas that were pretty cool. Um, like there was a, a, a game idea for like a, an RTS that was involving like bunnies eating carrots and if you let the bunnies get out of control they'd reproduce and you just have bajillions of bunnies in the yard and that was kind of funny <laughs> like there were some like things that were kind of amusing and there was like things that I could probably sink my teeth in with a clearer head now and they might pan out to something better but it just so happened that it almost perfectly coincided with the start of Mother Gunship like when Emmy was born basically like right at the end of the pregnancy Mother Gunship came along as something to work on and I basically sunk you, my teeth into that immediately. You're acting like this game happened to you. <laughs> like, I was, I don't know, my wife was pregnant, I was doing prototypes, and nothing was pan out, and then Mother Gunship happened. Like, yeah. so, <laughs> it, it, just, it was a thing. It just came out of yeah. nowhere and it bit me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it kind of did. It kind of did come out of nowhere. I mean, so, okay, I need to back up here a little bit with Tower Guns. Tower Guns did pretty well on PC and then attracted the attention of Humble. Um, who's great mm -hmm. to work with and humble was like hey do you want to put this in a bundle and i said sure uh and so um we put it into a, a home bundle and it it got the attention because of the amount of people who were playing it after that it got the attention of a company named grip digital and so now we should probably talk about grip because there are they at the time they were a fairly small studio who just did porting of games mm -hmm. um and they helped me port tower guns onto ps3 and xbox one and ps4 um and they also helped negotiate deals with PlayStation Plus and uh, games, uh, what the heck was it called? Games with Gold. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so that went from, you know, the game went from being played by, you know, a bunch of people on PC to being played by a lot of people on consoles. Um, and especially once you, the PS Plus deal comes in and the Xbox deal come, came in, it's like you're talking millions of people. Like those, those deals go out to a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a ton of people playing it and Grip and I had worked pretty well together and Grip had a lot of engineers and they were like, we need to put them on something, engineers and, and various other developers, but they weren't really um, suited to make a game from scratch. Um, they mm. were getting there. They wanted to be like, okay, we want to make our own games from scratch from start to finish and want them to be big and good and awesome. But uh, until then, do you want to work on a sequel with us for Tower Guns? And I was So the most important or interesting part of the story is Grip is not a Boston studio, right? Yeah. Like, where is Grip? Grip is in the Czech Republic. Uh, Grip is in Prague. Um, and uh, that, for those who don't know, is six hours away um, from us, time zone-wise. Um, oh, and, I was going to uh, say, I think it's a little further than that. But yeah, time zone-wise. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, time zone-wise. Oh, no, yes. flying there takes you all day and yeah. half. And you end up, like, suddenly vanishing a day because you don't realize you've gone so far forward and on the clock. Um which happened to me a couple of times, messing up my schedules. Um, nice. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, they're six hours ahead of us, and um, so any kind of conversations that had to happen with them happened like really early in the morning our time, uh, because they would be at the end of their workday their time. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, you know, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to work on Tower of Guns because, in some way, it kind of felt like retreating back to what I knew. But then after a year of failure of all these prototypes of like not having anything that really stuck. Um, I was like, okay, maybe I need some of that comfort. Maybe I should work on something I know how to do. Maybe I should refine that, and maybe that's a better strategy. And so Grip approached you right around when your daughter was born and was like, yo, make or, uh, 
make Tower of Guns 2? Basically, it was a little bit beforehand. Uh, so there was like maybe a month beforehand, uh, but not much. Uh, it was pretty close to the same. I, I could probably tell you today, but like, uh, well, it was a month or two months. Well, it, whatever. It was It was sometime in, in quarter four 2015. Uh, so... Okay. Um, then uh, I flew out there and we kind of like had a meeting and we chatted and we kind of like felt through what actually it might have been like November or October. Well, anyway, um, we kind of felt through kind of like what it would look like, who would, who would we need, what could we build, what were people excited about from Tower of Guns, what would they like to see in a sequel? And, uh, and that's where I met uh, Roddick, who was one of their engineers, and I worked with him pretty closely over the next three years on Molly Gunship. Um, and he was the like lead engineer and then I was the lead uh, designer. Um, and initially artist until we ended up getting art friends to help us. Okay. So you, so they approached you, they were like, let's make uh, tower of guns too, but let's call it mother gunship, I guess. No, or... they said, let's make tower of guns too. And they were just wanting to make tower of guns, uh, straight up. They were like, you know, we'll make it same style. It'll be quick. It'll be something fun. It'll be like, like we know what we're doing. And oh, so you're saying your second game was supposed to be a really quick sequel, but instead yep. it turned into a much bigger project. Yeah, I've, seen, I've heard this story before. Yeah, okay. have you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this story infinite number of times. Pardon the pun. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> zing. I am I was shocked just by more. that one. It, <laughs> Well, there is a common thing in the industry where you're like, oh my God, that project was long and I didn't know what to do. You know what? I'm just going to clean the play. I'm just going to do a quick thing. It's just going to be a quick thing. I'm just going to bang it out in a couple months. It'll just be X, Y, Z. It'll be this plus that, or it'll be this, but it'll be the sequel. And then it ends up being like taking over your life and taking several years. Like when you started that that deal with Grip, did you think it would be a three-year project? No, we thought it would be, you know, like a 12-month or, or, or shorter even project. Uh, maybe, maybe we... Maybe it was like 12 to 15 months. I can't remember what the initial plan was, but it was supposed to be something fairly quick, which that, for for the listeners who don't know, that, that'd be a very fast turnaround cycle for a, a, a full uh, premium game. You know, like uh, a year-long cycle on a PC game is not not, uh, not a very long your, time. Yeah, the production values you were going for, especially for like, a, it was a first-person game, right? Like that's yeah. not, yeah, no. One year is pretty fast. Huh. It was ambitious. Yeah, it was it was going to be pretty ambitious uh, because we wanted to do kind of bigger things. But then the more I began thinking about, it, the more I began looking at the design stuff we wanted to do. The more we talked about all of the things we wanted to have from Tower Guns, we couldn't get like co-op or like a steadier frame rate or more variety in the environments. Like all of those things, which you know they still hamper the final Mother Gunship product a little bit. But like all of those things that we wanted, kind of led me towards thinking that we actually shouldn't be making a sequel, but making a whole new kind of game. Um, especially with the gun crafting being as wild as we wanted it to be, I was like, let's yeah. let's kind of go in a different direction. And uh, and I was the one who proposed changing things to Mother Gunship, not them. Um, which uh, it's it's something that I was really worried that they would not buy onto. But when I gave them a pitch, uh, the pitch, the two founders over at Grip, they were like, oh, this is this is cool. We're on board with this. Actually, let's give it a try and see. And okay, so, so you basically, they were they reached out to you and they were like, hey, make a sequel. And then you went out to them and you were like, hey, but what if we don't? What if we go for a much bigger spend and we make a co-op game? And they were like, yeah, and they were on board with it? Well, the spend would probably have been roughly about the same. It was just more so a different branded product because I was like, I even though it was still kind of Tower Guns 2 in its heart, I wanted to have a different story. I wanted to have a different kind of lore. I wanted to have different restrictions. Tower Guns... Uh, came along with it a very deliberate art style that was kind of borderlandsy. It came with it a, a very weird story. Like the story in Tower Guns is randomly picked from a selection of like 30 different stories and they're always really silly and stupid. Um, like part of the, and part of the fun of it was that like, I think one of the reasons people like Tower Guns was that the stories were so stupid. Like in one of the versions of it, it's like, okay, here's like a Terminator clone where you're going back in time and destroy this tower before it destroys humanity or something. But then another one, you are playing as a person who is lost trying to figure out where the party's at. And the entire game, you're just trying to figure out where the party's at. Um, like, these stories were really stupid and written pretty quickly, and they were kind of meant to be silly. And it's kind of a commentary on how the story doesn't really matter in a first-person shooter, and people kind of got that. But they were also really goofy and fun to write. And for Mother Gunship, I actually wanted to have one story, not have it be randomly generated, not have it be... Uh, um, quite as as ill-fitting and have it tie into the actual world a bit more and matter a little bit more. Um, mm. And with that kind of came a different kind of brand. 
Um, and so Mother Gunship came about, and it's like related. It's a follow-up. It's definitely the same DNA as Tower Guns because, you know, people who are playing Tower Guns would be like, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with these kinds of enemies. I'm familiar with this kind of movement. I'm familiar with this kind of gameplay. But this is something fresh and different and unique. So, um, Okay. And so you came up with this idea. You pitched it. You're working with these... Uh, how big was your team out in the Czech Republic working on this? Um, so there was, uh, it, well, it depends on when. We started with just two of us working for like a full year almost, maybe nine to ten months, um, uh, just the two of us. And then we brought on a few more people in the Czech Republic. Grip actually um, hired a bunch of new people who were in a different city, not in Prague. They were in Zlin. So then Grip had remote people working remotely with me. So they were remote even from Grip. Um, and there was, there was an engineer and designer who were, and a, a technical designer who were, who were there. Um, so it's like suddenly we expanded from two cities to three cities. And then we brought in um, a, a friend of mine who was in Germany. Um, so uh, he had worked with me on Tower Guns on QA work for Linux, for the Linux port. Um, I should say that Tower Guns went from being a solo developer. And in its post-life, there was a lot of people who were involved with it, like Grip hmm. or like this person, uh, Chris. And so like he came on board and then we had, you know, four cities, four locations. And was then... that hard to give up? Like, cause I, I've, I went through, like I made kind solo and now I'm like, I'm clawing it away. I, I got some money to uprest the art and some of, uh, it's tempting to micromanage a lot more than you maybe should when you're a solo dev. And it sounds like you went from, you slowly went from one dev to two devs to what, five across different cities? Yeah, well, at the end of that project, we were at 15 people across. 15? Yeah, it got pretty big. That was at the most, uh, right at the last like month or two, uh, Grip threw a couple more people at us to help us out. Um, and we were across, oh, I don't know, like six different cities or something like that, especially since there were people Jeez. in Boston too at that point. We had, we had designers here in Boston making levels. There was one guy in Alabama making art. I mean, we were all over the place. Um, How did you hire all these people? slowly (laughs) (laughs) like was it grip that hired them or how did it changed uh, depending on where the money was at the time and and how much funding we had and you know the thing that that you know a lot of them were in the czech republic and the czech republic's cost of living is way 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 less than the usa so a lot of the developers uh, were there um like you know you know there's a tourist area which will be like the same prices that we are used to but then you go off that tourist area and it's like dollar beers and they're like really crazy check beer not that i really drink beer but like you know it's like really significantly cheaper to 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 live in the czech republic than it is here in the usa um dude are you ever tempted to just move out there (laughs) well i mean you could make a lot further go well i don't know maybe because it's it's it is a cool country um it's but like you know like a good wage is there like twenty thousand dollars is like a really good wage from my understanding there um and that's like, you know, you'll have, you know, talented engineers making that much money. And they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, and then like the senior engineers will be learning like 30 or 35. And I'm like, really? That's like a third or a quarter of the price of what the, the, that level of engineer would be here in the U.S. Um, now, I mean, that's changing gradually as stuff kind of levels out because um, Czech Republic is getting more and more and more, I guess you would say, like intertwined with the rest of the EU. But like they're still... Like, I guess they're kind of still like a semi-secret place to go live, I guess, in, in the EU. Man, I, I'm i tempted. Like, the cost of living goes up every year here. And there's definitely always conversations about how much cheaper you can get things done overseas. But I, I'll say, like, in, in AAA, every time I've worked with somebody overseas, it's a combination of the incredible time lag and just the amount of management you have to do to describe exactly what you want, especially if you're working with somebody who doesn't speak English as a primary language, um, it, it's almost worth it to just pay the premium and have somebody where you can give them, how do I explain it? So like if I, if I need motion capture shot or an animation made, um, explaining that animation, I basically have to draw it and almost do it uh, yeah. before I send it overseas. You know what I mean? And that, there was um, a lot of that with working with grip in the earlier days the the founders thought i was crazy because i was like drawing out everything and like making notes on different stuff and there was one person there who didn't speak english but uh most of them actually did speak english uh, very well mm-hmm. in fact so the czech republic okay can i give you all like a quick history listen about the czech republic do it. Learned a few do things. It. so czech republic they were like the first to basically start protesting and rebelling against the soviet union against the uh, against the kremlin like when when the berlin wall fell 
uh, it was like the Czech Republic was, was they take pride in being the place where all the protests like started. And the time between when the protests started and the Berlin Wall fell was only like 18 months. It was a really quick turnaround. Um, so like there was a huge sea change and the Czech people take a lot of pride in the fact that they feel like they were, were um, some of the first instigators of that change. Um, and when that wall fell, all the schools changed over from being required to, like all the students were required to learn Russian to being required to learn something else, but not Russian, and most of them chose English. And so as a result, almost anyone who's our age or younger has a pretty good command of the English language. Hmm. Like not all of them, but a lot of them do. Um, and hmm. anyone who's older knows Russian, but doesn't know any English. So if you're ever in Prague and you don't know where you're going, find somebody young and they probably speak English. Um, or younger, because I'm not really that young anymore. But find someone who looks like they're, they're you know, like mid-30s or younger, and you'll find, and you'll be, uh, you'll, you should be able to find some help. Um, but it's, uh, you know, every so often you still find someone who either, you know, didn't take English in school or was in a different kind of situation and didn't learn English. Um, and there was one person on the team who didn't speak English. Um, and for them, I would have to draw out things very deliberately. And he was an artist. Um, I would have to kind of like go through the uh, engineers and kind of like make them kind of translate for me. I would have to uh, um, do temp models or like example models. And that was really arduous in the beginning. I felt like I was kind of training him and gradually it got better and better because he started to learn what I wanted. But then also they had an artist who came on board to help him out who was, who did speak English and uh, he was able to communicate things a little bit more directly. Um, yeah. And I think watching, because I, I saw your talk in Boston about this and, and I saw the steps you went through. And I feel like in a way you're not going to get away with that anyways, because what you were doing was establishing an art style. And I feel like you would have had to do that even if they were American. It just takes a while to get a team of artists to all, to make a game look like it's made by one artist. You kind of got to get everybody to gel and congeal on like one look, one style, one kind of methodology, I guess, for how things are built. And I think you would have had to do that even if everybody was a Boston local. I think so. I probably so, actually. I'm, I'm sure. I'm certain because we went through the same process back at 38 of coming up with an art style and defining key elements and defining the the signature pieces and kind of what you're going for. But it's it was definitely it definitely added to the stress knowing that there was somebody there that uh, who couldn't I couldn't necessarily communicate very well to. So I needed to like make it as visual as possible. And yeah, the time uh, zone difference and the language difference, I imagine, just compounded it, right? Yeah, and I imagine that that guy was, I feel real bad because he was probably really frustrated with me because he would be like, he would send me something that he probably thought was great. And I'd be like, no, and I'd draw all over it and I'd be like, what are all these scribbles? Like, he was probably like, what does this lunatic want me to do? Um, or what does this lunatic want me to do? But like, yeah, he was like, eventually, like, we kind of both got on the same page and then he was able to just roll forward with stuff. Um, but it took us a long time to kind of like narrow in on how to communicate what I wanted to him. And at the same time, figure out myself, like what did I want visually? Because it became pretty clear after a couple of months on the project that I could not do this one on my own, even components of it on my own. Like originally we were thinking like, okay, maybe I could, maybe Joe can handle all the art and level design and just having the engineers with grip help out with all of the, the tech side of things, maybe that'll work out. And maybe we can make Tower Guns 2 this way. And then once we began getting into how complicated the art style was gonna be and what we wanted to achieve visually, it's like, no, we won't be able to do this thing without more help. <laughs> this is resonating with me very well. Yeah, but we did. We still kept it pretty cheap. We still kept it as cheap as we could. But um, you know, there was a lot of corner cutting along the way, and a lot of like, okay, this is good enough. And I, you know, we had to just be like, okay, this is the look we're going to take, and it's it's as long yeah. as it didn't look bad, then then we could roll with it. And I think the final game came out pretty um, pretty okay looking, considering how small we were and how how fast we were working. Well, 15 people. What percentage were artists? Like, how many of you guys were artists? Uh, at the end. So I don't know if you could call me an artist on that because I was basically doing directing. You were the creative director at that point. Right. Yeah. At that point, I was doing very little art. So there was Zuko, who still works with me now. Um, and he was the guy in Alabama. And he was building all of the environment stuff. Vasek, who was in the, in the Czech Republic. And he was doing a lot of support art and um, did a decent amount of UI stuff. And then Mergi who was the um, concept artist who would occasionally dive into UI art and occasionally dive into um, uh, texture type things and marketing art as well. So there was just the three. And then me yeah. occasionally. Is that right? Who am I missing? I'm going to feel bad if I'm missing someone. Oh, oh, and then uh, Poke, the animator. We, nice. we've, I, it took a lot of convincing to get uh, Poke on board, but he's an amazing animator. Um, mm. And he was also in Prague as well. Um, Prague. Yeah, okay. he was in Prague. So I, that was three in Prague, one in Alabama, and then me, whenever I could help out on art, I did. 
Gotcha. Interesting. How do you keep everybody, like, are you all on a Slack together? We're, You're obviously not working at the same time. Yeah, we were all on a Slack together. Um, there was a pretty massive Slack uh, uh, channel with lots of sub-channels and lots of sub-conversations going on. And, I mean, when I say 15, that's kind of an, uh, an inflated number a little bit because it was really just like that for the last, like, month or two. And that involved a lot of people who were part-time, a lot of people who were, like, on other projects with Grip and then would come in and spend half the time with us or that last month with us. That last month, like we got the marketing person from Grip, um, who was who would be working on other projects during the other months, and would be like, "Okay, we're going to work on this I for see. this month." So, wow. so it's not like your fifteen is all in. I'm I I love marketing, but I don't count them as part of Dev. I think that is like a different bucket. Uh, that was probably would have been, yeah, yeah. I mean, I count them as part of the team because you know they were someone who was in a lot of the meetings and kind of helping us steer what we were building at what time. Marketing was pretty pretty tied to what we were building as we were building it because we were constantly pushing towards whatever we were showing off next uh mm -hmm. like what demo we were showing off or what beat we had like like working with the marketing guy we kind of narrowed in that we were going to build a demo and have it be released and the demo was going to show off the crafting system like mother gunship had a really wacky crafting system like have you guys mm -hmm. seen that at all or no i did from your talk yeah so um chris you haven't seen it right i have not no it's kind of like playing with legos so imagine mm -hmm. a first person shooter where your guns are made out of different kinds of barrels and different kind of connection pieces and you basically could just build something that has 30 barrels on it and there's <laughs> no limit to that it's really silly um and that's that was the heart of the game and so we're like okay we need to show this off so you know we were working really closely with the marketing guy to make a demo that could show that off um and uh it it was very um uh i don't know it was a very tight team in terms of what we were yeah. building and uh yeah probably about 15 people at the end nice but your marketing person was full-time on just uh, mother gunship for like the last month yeah uh, he was working on I plenty of you. other things um but and he was around before that but it, i see what you mean yeah 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 Grit, this yeah. is where so when i'm thinking 15 i'm thinking like 15 full-time and i'm like holy crap but in reality they were on the full-time towards the end but and marketing was helping but your marketing guy was probably also on several other projects right um yeah but then you know like grip would pull him based off of what they were working on because he was a, he was a, he was a, also a, a, a prog guy um and so, yeah. like, he'd be working on other projects, but then he'd come in and work with us. But he was still working with us all the last year. He would be, like, quarter or half time. And then it was mm -hmm. like, okay, last couple of months, full time on this. Let's get all this yeah, stuff Yeah, that's out. an interesting... I mean, you basically got the benefit of... Um, so when, when you have a studio that's a multi-project studio, part of the reason you do that is that you have these resources that you need, like... You need an audio person, but you need them... And you want them for the whole project, but only, like, a quarter of their time. Mm -hmm. And yep. so if you have... If you have a multi-project studio, that's nice because you have those resources that you can share and you can count on the same like core team being there. But a lot of jobs, you just like you need these people full time and these people, you just only need a quarter of their time. And it sounds like you managed to, to leverage that. Yeah, and a, a lot of that was to Grip's credit because Grip had built up a studio over the three years where they were getting more and more porting work. They were working on more and more kinds of things where they needed to bring on, like instead of just engineers, now they need to bring on an animator. Now they need to bring on a design person. Now they need to bring on. So it's like gradually they were growing their own team too. And, Jesus, uh, you're, you're convincing me to work with Grip and or move to Prague right now. That's what this whole podcast <laughs> well, is. Well, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't all roses. This time zones became a huge deal at various points and there was definitely stress and conflict at different times. Um, it was, uh, it, it, there were, there's a, there's a good team there. There's definitely a good team, but it's like, there was also a lot of a lot of trials getting this thing over the end, and um, it's uh, it's something I think that we can all be really proud of the team, and it was a good a good uh, um, I think result. But um, that time zone stuff and the the two different studios created a lot of complications too. I mean, even the, just logistically, the two different studios, right? Like what my studio mean? versus their studio, like that's that's very complicated for uh, like for like partners to come and look at and be like okay so wait how does this work two studios co-own this thing so it's oh. like it gets very complicated very quickly um and so it's um you know it's yes it worked out from other gunship and yes i would work with um those developers all those developers were super talented and uh any one of them i'd want to work with again uh but it's the kind of thing that it's like now that i'm moving on to something else i'm like okay now i'm gonna work um on this uh with um with people who are all under my name or under my my studio name, my 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 wing, kind of on my next project. Yeah, isn't that stressful though? Like you just uh, you you went through this stressful time between Tower of Guns and Mother Gunship, and I know it wasn't easy. And now you've got that same thing, but you have people. Yeah, the game industry is kind of a, a, 
a good excuse to feel stressed all the time for one reason or another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's. I mean, like, where where are you mentally right now? Like, are you in the prototyping phase again, or? Yeah, yeah, I'm in the prototyping phase again. Things are super early, um, but it is super exciting too. And Terrell Posture Games has grown a little bit, um, but uh, we're not 15 people. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah, that was that was towards the end of Mother Gunship. We grew quite a bit, and um, it's we supported Mother Gunship after launch for about three or four months. Uh, we did two major updates. Um, we released a bunch of new campaign stuff, and uh, and then Grip and I were like, okay, time for us to go work on on other stuff now. Um, and so do you, hmm? how do you feel it was critically and commercially? Like, was it a decent success commercially? Uh, I think it was okay. I think that um, I think that there's a lot of things that we could have done differently that would have been bigger and better. Um, I feel like there's some things that I called out and some things that that Grips founders called out that would have been really good to have have had that we never got. Um, I feel like we were constantly chasing too much marketing. I feel like we announced too early and I feel like we went to too many shows and that distracted us from development. I feel like we could have made a better game if we had been focused more on development. Do you feel like you were making a lot of demos and not making the game? Oh the yeah, the first the first year was just like demos, 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 demos. And like, oh. let's make the game, let's make the game, let's make the game. Um, I was getting really frustrated by that. Um, but then once things started clicking, then it was like really, things were clicking and we were, we were on fire. Um, critically, I think that... There were a few things that we, decisions that we made early on that kind of hurt us critically, but the people who were more hardcore into the game appreciated them. And so there was like good reason behind them, but it hurt reviews. Um, and there were some bugs that were pretty major early on that hurt reviews that we got resolved, but, you know, people don't go back and change their reviews. So mm-hmm. um, I think it did pretty decently review wise. What sort of stuff, just uh, don't want to get too bogged down in it, but what sort of stuff, because uh, you mentioned things that didn't go down well with critics but did go down well with fans what sort of stuff are you talking about well like delaying multiplayer was a big thing like that was supposed to come out at launch and we had to to postpone it um by about a month and a half and that Ah. was that was like oh that sucks because that was a big component playing with your friends is you're playing with your friends and showing them these really weird guns that you're making is really funny and hilarious Mm. and people like that and uh it's a shame that we had to postpone that one um but getting it in and sturdier when you know by the time we did release it fans were like okay now here's some more new content so the people who were playing it were like whoa a new patch dropped with new guns and multiplayer and other stuff and it was like they appreciated it oh, i was just gonna ask why did you decide to launch it without multiplayer rather than just delay the entire launch uh there were a few things that had already been set in motion and we were working with a retailer um to get physical versions of the game in and we were working with a few pretty rigid time windows about when we needed to release um, and when we'll need to actually be selling the game. And those are things that were kind of locked down months ahead of time. And there were things that couldn't change. I, I would have loved to have changed some of them. Um, but in some cases, it's like, they were like, no, Joe, we've already delayed this four or five times. And now stuff is kind of in writing and set in stone. And we need to rock. <laughs> so it's like, all right, we'll just we have to do what we have to do. Um, so it's, unfortunately, even as creative director of this project, like there were things that were above me and beyond what I could make decisions-wise on my own, and there were things that just needed to be decided between myself and Grip's founders, and um, and once you get closer and closer to release, we thought we were actually going to genuinely hit the co-op. We were like, up until the last like three weeks beforehand, we were like, we can do this, we can make it. Um, and then it wasn't clear that we we're going to have to push co-op off by a month until, you know, right before launch. And it was a shame, and it was a bummer to all of us, but it's like, we can't change the dates at this point. There's too mm-hmm. much that's already locked in. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Um, so we, we launched without co-op, which was a bummer, but like, you know, the fans appreciated it when it did come in later and they, you know, were, were excited about it. And then we always wanted to release additional content and the game was kind of staged to release additional patch, patches of extra levels and extra guns. And so we did that for a little while too. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Man. And your relationship with Grip, they weren't a publisher. You were co-developing. They were the publisher of record as well. So they were publishing and we were co-developing. Okay. So, you know, they had a lot of the uh, publisher duties as well as, you know, obligations. And um, and that's also, you know, like being the publisher, they had a lot of resources that I didn't. They had published a bunch of other stuff as well. So they had contacts, particularly in Europe, that I didn't. But, you know, I was bringing a lot of people to the table as well. Like like Humble actually helped fund the game. Um, the game was part of the Humble Bundle. Uh, what do they call I can't remember the name of the fund, but Humble. The Humble Monthly? Not the Monthly. Um, the Monthly is their, like, subscription plan. But they actually have... 
a publishing arm as well and a funding arm. Oh, and, no uh, shit. Yeah, and they, they helped fund the game. They didn't publish it, but they helped fund it. And so, like, there's a sale right now, I think, on the Humble Store, which is probably won't, I don't know when this will go live, but uh, it probably won't be relevant anymore by the time this goes live. But occasionally, these Humble, Humble will put a sale of all the things they've helped publish or helped fund um, on their site, and uh, Mother Gunship was one of those. Um, but, like, nice. I was the one who made the matchmaking there. Nice. Yeah, of course. Cool. Interesting. Okay. Okay, so now how many, how many employees do you have now? Right now? There's, like, six of us. Six. Yeah. So like Dude. that guy from, but we're entirely remote still. Like that's one thing that you, once you start remote, it's like now you have all these relationships built with people all over the place. So like the, the, the artist in Alabama is still working with me and the two people who were designing uh, levels from other gunship. Now they work with me as, as a, as designers. Um, so they're here in the Boston area. Well, one's in Connecticut, one's in Boston. Um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, the animator you mentioned earlier, uh, Pete Paquette, he's working with me on a, on a contract basis. Um, and uh, we have one technical animator in New York, or sorry, technical uh, artist in New York, um, and uh, one programmer who's in Nevada. So but, we're all over the place. Are all these people, I guess when I say they're, they're employees, I mean, are they W-2 or are they contractors? They're W-2. And do they work for you full-time? Yeah, they're W-2. W-2. Yeah. Uh, Pete Paquette's not, but like, that, uh, like, he's like, like, he's able to... Pete, yeah, Pete is amazing. I, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, he's he's contracting. Yeah, I, yeah, I he's only he's I, only like fifteen hours a week. But. That's what I was trying to feel out. Was like, how many of your people are contractors versus how many of your people are like, um, I guess what would you call it, off-site full-time employees? I, I guess. think yeah, Massachusetts calls them just employees. Um, oh. <laughs> but but yeah, it's weird too because we're we're like so many different states that it becomes logistically really complicated to figure out. Um, so I've had to have a lot of conversations with my accountant. I've had to have, I have a part-time HR person who helps me out figuring out how to negotiate all the state situations. Because um, two people in Massachusetts, but then, you know, Nevada and Alabama and Connecticut and New York. And it's like, oh, man, it's pain. This is but, probably the future of game development, with the exception of most of us will be living in cheaper places than <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> I, I actually think. I think this is actually the way things are going, distributed teams. I, I'm really interested in hearing how you, I, I mean, does everybody really stay in touch in Slack that well? How do you? Uh... Well, we switched to Discord first off for, for our stuff. Okay. Uh, and the reason is that Discord allows for open chat rooms so people can just drop in and, and drop out pretty easily. And so, you know, if people are feeling like they're, um, they're, they're lonely, then they just drop into the open chat room and they can be talking while they're working. Um, which works well for artists, but obviously the engineer will, will put it, go heads down and then pop in and say hello and then go heads down. Um, mm-hmm. But Discord allows for that open chat all the time, which is nice, um, as opposed to, to Slack, which does not have that. You'd have to make actual calls. Um, yes. Interesting. Um, I, I definitely dig that. And they, um, yeah. Do you guys have core hours where we, you all work at the same time? We do uh, from 10 to 4. Um, and then people fill in the rest of the hours whenever they want on either, either end of that. Um, oh, because you're all EST now, right? No, Alabama. Alabama's actually an hour behind. So for him, it's nine to three. And then for the Nevada guy, he gets up at seven. Actually, he gets up really early, but he says that he prefers it. And his core hours end up being basically like seven until, uh, well, whenever that is, one o'clock. Um, but uh, he says that he doesn't mind waking up at seven. So uh, as long as he still doesn't mind waking up at seven, we'll keep him up on that. Um, we do we do a virtual stand up every day at ten o'clock. Talk about what we've been doing. And uh, mm-hmm. we try and keep it as close to uh, an office structure as possible, but obviously it's really hard when everyone's separated. And one of the things I've learned is that you can, like as nice as the virtual distributed team is, you can't really have a substitute for in-face time. And so like I'm looking for reasons to see my employees face-to-face wherever I can. So like, you know, like the people who are local, like, you know, me and Pete and PJ, who's one of the designers, we'll all go to the Boston Unreal meetups whenever we can. So we kind of get some FaceTime that way. Or at GDC, there's going to be a lot of FaceTime with me and Zuko because we're both going. But then uh, Nolan, the guy who lives in Nevada, he only lives three hours away. So he's going to drive out and, and hang out for uh, a day and kind of get to meet us a little bit more in person. Because really, the in-person time is super valuable. And as, 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 as much as I agree that the future of game development is probably going to be more distributed like this, um, you can solve more problems, get more done, or just get to know a person better in face-to-face time. Like an hour face-to-face time is worth a day on um, virtual. It's, yeah, and it's just better, like as human beings, it's better to gel as a team. There's so much more 
I like I could go into this. The, at the molasses flood, we settled on we work from home two days a week and we're uh, in the office three days a week, and it like and that's good because there are certain times when you want to click on music and just get your head down and get stuff done. I think programmers yeah. feel that a lot more. Um, and for us, two days a week was the amount of time you want that versus there needs to be time when you are capable of being interrupted immediately because it uh, your work is the it's just important that you're not blocking other people and right. so having that time in the office is important and being immediately reachable is important and there's just something about talking to somebody where you can look in someone's eyes and have that conversation and come to an agreement so much faster and more easily uh, like nothing will replace face to face I don't think but yeah. I'll tell you what I'm doing for kind which is working out shockingly well is um so and this is an accident right like I started out fully intending to make this game solo like completely solo that was my goal certain things came up i started pitching it around and i i fell after i started pitching a game that was much bigger with a bigger uh budget and stuff i suddenly <laughs> really wanted to make that game like which is just kind but you know like with a budget an art budget uh and i just fell in love with doing that and i managed to get the funding for that and as soon as i did that i was like all right now how do i do this and for me i've been working with um I work with houses, basically teams that are used to working together and that are working in the same building. So for instance, if I need effects, I go to Effectsville. And if I need multiple effects artists, they're all sitting next to each other and they can jam and make sure the effects all look the same. Oh, that's nice. And for, for my environment art, I, I only really talk to one person at Surface Digital. I talk to Rick, but I know there's three people underneath him that are actually building the levels. Um, and they all know each other and they work together really well and they're capable of gelling on that easily. And so it, it kind of becomes like a tree, right? Like I talk to Rick and Rick talks to the artists and Rick's job is to make sure that all the artists stay um, within, you know, like one kind of art style that Rick and I have defined and, and set down, right? And I do the same thing, like my musician and my audio guy are working together closely um, and they work together and they bring it to me. And so you kind of have this like, I think a really interesting way to do development is to have a small core team uh, that comes up with the vision and then outs uh, outsourcing houses that are used to working together, creating content to feed that vision, especially later in the game, especially if you've got a game with like what you're working on, where you just suddenly need a towards the end of the production, you just need a shit ton of environment art. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or you just need a shit ton of effects. Um, and, and I think that's to me, that feels good. And that feels really sustainable because if, if you're Effectsville, you have multiple games that you're working on. If one game gets canceled, you're not going to ruin people's lives. Also, everybody's used to working together. You still have that office environment. I, I feel like this is a, a really powerful way for the industry to move. It's I think you're opinion. probably right. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's kind of similar to what Hollywood does, where they'll bring on different effects houses for different things. And it's like, okay, you know, shot 12, 15, 20, they're all going to this house. Shot 2, shot 12, or shot 30, shot... You know, like these other three shots are going to go to another house and it's like they distribute it that way similarly but like or like all the people will be done by this house and all the like particle like really particle stuff will be done by this other house or you know like they'll like and i kind of feel like we're i agree that that's probably a more sustainable way to go down than certainly than everybody who's like then studios having a specialized people like a, a suite of each specialization kind of like prepared and ready to go like I don't know. Like, well, what am I trying to say here? Uh, I think you're probably right. To, another way to do it, like I think if you're uh, if you don't want to go that way, I think it's totally possible to have a studio, but be like a multi-project studio. Yeah. So you're diverse. Basically, the the goal is to diversify risk because we have a huge like this industry is so risky. It and is. if you want to be like, I will be, I will make kind, and I, this will be insanely risky. But only me and maybe a handful in the future, like when I grow Chump Squad, only a handful of people will really be taking this massive risk. Um, I won't have like a team of 30 people taking a risk. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that's probably a more mature, more sustainable way to go. Um, I think that I, I would love to be able to get to that point where I am, have more relationships built up with more outsourcers and more of a need to it. I keep with like my next project, the, the requirements of it are kind of weird and obscure. It's still being defined. So like I couldn't find someone else to help me with it right now. Uh, like I mm -hmm. need that core team, but like, there may come a point where I could rinse and repeat and be like, okay, hey, teams, help me out with this. Uh, and actually with audio, I do. I, I work very closely with a company named Skew Sound for audio, um, and they are basically a 
four-person team that just does audio for games, and they have been great to work with. And I, that means that I don't need to have an audio person in-house right now. Uh, so it's like you're right. It 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 does. One, it removes the risk from someone. Well, you know, the, the flip side though is that the cost is sometimes higher. Well, it is, but you. Um, what's the saying when you hire a prostitute? You don't pay them to. You pay them to leave at the end. <laughs> I mean, at the at the end, yes, it costs more to pay an outsourcing house than it does to hire an employee, kind of. But there, the reality is, you need you don't. There's a lot of wasted time and wasted work in between projects when you don't really know what's going on, and you have nobody enjoys that time. Nobody enjoys coming into work and working on something that they think will most likely get cut, or that isn't real. Um, nobody yeah, enjoys it can be a huge their, demoralizer. Oh, it, it wrecks you. Motivate like nobody likes coming in and like doing throwaway tasks to punch the clock. Like that's shit. Nobody enjoys that. And being the when you have an outsourcing house, you you can be really clear. I'm like, yo, Rick, I'm gonna need you from here to here. And once this work is done, I think I'll probably need one or two people. But after that, you know, uh, I'll be. Until I start DLC, I, I won't need you anymore. And it's not like weird. We both know that. And it's, we just kind of built, he built his plan around that. And like he, Surface Digital will, um, at any given time, he's got his artists that he's juggling and moving around between several different projects. Uh, and he's running his business completely keeping that in mind. I don't know. I, yes, it's kind of more expensive, but because you're not wasting people's time, it ends up being less expensive in my mind uh and also it gives you the ability to be very flexible and to um like cancel a project or completely change direction a project so you need a completely different thing it Uh, does it's probably a little bit more you know morally responsible too because you're not asking all these people to change their livelihoods and risk something where you may only need their time for three months Mm. like i treat hiring a new person very seriously because i'm like i don't want this person to not have a job in a year so it's like can if i'm bringing this person on am i going to need them for a year it's like Mm -hmm. that's that's the attitude i take because it's like if i can't justify that then i should i should be looking for for either part-time contractor or for uh free or for a uh outsourcing studio or for something similar because yeah you know it feels it feels morally questionable to ask someone to uproot and change their life for you um when you are um, not sure if you even need them for long term. Absolutely, like it feels morally irresponsible to do that for a salary, and it feels morally like I feel guilty about um, contracting, about leading people on too much if it's an individual contractor too. Like if they, how do I put it? I don't want to. Part- the gig economy sucks, and it's I've been there, and I know what it's like to be to not know if you're going to have another contract after this, and to uh, not know how long your contracts go, and so. I don't, I don't want to participate. I don't want to move the world towards a place where we all live gig to gig and contracting. I like the idea that people have salaries um, from these external houses. You know what I mean? Like, to yeah, me and that's morally- why I think I. That's why I think I. I feel like there's similarities between what you're describing and, and Hollywood because it feels like that's kind of what Hollywood is like. Um, it seems like, although a lot of people complain that there's never enough money and all. When you have too many houses like that. Like if you oh, had yeah. like more than just one FX person at, at your disposal, then all of a sudden they start bidding against each other and then they can get to the point where they're bidding below sustainability and that, that can suck too. Or they're all in the Czech Republic where it's apparently $20,000 for a programmer a year. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the really experienced ones, I think were like 30 or 35, but like, yeah, still it's like, you know, what was, you know, you tell me what was the lead engineer making back at, at Irrational. I could, you know, probably, you know, 120 to 150, somewhere in there. The like, northern end of that range, yeah. Like, I would not be surprised uh, about that at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, and I mean, at 38, it was, it was. I'm sure it was similar. I mean, I don't know, but actually, you probably could find out somehow. Yeah, all, yeah this is basically all public stuff. at this point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, uh, but yeah, I mean, and that's not considered to be absurd either. I mean, it's good wages, but that's not, um, that's not like, uh, throwing money away like they they earn that money here but it's like that's just depending on the city the cost of living is like you know oh dude in san francisco it's even more yeah 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 i know uh it it is uh, we are coming to some sort of reckoning globally i think (laughs) 
as far as the wages go. Oh, uh, that's yeah. terrifying to say as an American, but it's definitely there. Uh, there's, <laughs> I'm stuffing money in my mattress after this and moving to the Czech Republic. I don't know, man. Like, that doesn't <laughs> seem like a bad idea. So, yeah. I, yeah, the, the the food that I ate was good. The the people are really nice. The the, the city has a lot of pickpockets, but otherwise it's very safe. Yeah. <laughs> like, like they, like, it's weird too, because you think about like the Czech Republic and you're like, oh man, is, is it going to be a safe place? Because it's a strange new city. You're not really, or like in Prague, you're like, it's a strange new city. I hear there's a lot of pickpockets. I hear the taxi cab driver is going to scam you. And then, you know, I'm talking to my, my colleagues in Prague and they're like, I don't know about coming to the U.S., man. I hear there's guns everywhere, and I'm going to go to this conference wrong. center, and I'm going to get shot. And I'm like, I Irrational was in like, Quincy, man. You know Quincy. Yeah, Quincy's uh, got a reputation. It Parts looked, of it. Yeah. Parts I lived right near the studio, too. Yeah. not. I, I just feel like Czech is actually probably safer. Oh, it's super safe. It's super safe. Uh, I mean, yes, there are people who will, who will pickpocket you, but they're not going to hold you at gunpoint. Like, apparently, <laughs> They'll steal your stuff, you know, but they won't kill you. There you go. That's uh... a... Yeah. <laughs> well you won't even know you have had your stuff stolen <laughs> like it's like yeah apparently that's 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 the uh the the thing though is that like it is it is very safe there compared to here but it was surprising to me to me to think that like i was nervous about going to prague the first time and i've been there a couple times now um but then they're super nervous about coming to san francisco or about going to boston for pax east it's like they're like is it going to be safe for me and i'm like it, it really kind of put some things in perspective in my head because it's like the u.s has just got a reputation now of everyone being this this uh i hate to say it but everyone in their mind is a texan dude i know you're you say like now i know you don't have a lot you don't have a lot <laughs> more time and i wish we could dive into this more because it's crazy even like like my because i got family that live in very very rural areas and they're like oh we don't want to go to the cities they all have guns there and then i talked to my friends in boston they're like oh you don't want to go out to the you know to the the upstate area and man they got guns out there it's yeah it's <laughs> like everybody's yeah. afraid of everybody it's crazy yeah um, it feels very uh and yeah you don't even realize how bad the reputation has gotten until you start talking to people from other other countries and then they're like the u.s man i don't know if i want to go there i don't know if i come back and i'm like it's yeah. fine it's fine you know I think. And it doesn't <laughs> help that gdc is in like no offense man but the areas around gdc are not safe actually Oh, especially if you go down 8th Street, like Tenderloin area, that's, uh, there's some... The Tenderloin spilled out. It's all the way over on, like, south south of Market, Soma. Like, it's a... I don't know, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an adventure. I've got my share of stories. I have a friend of mine I go with every year who, who no matter what, the dude seems to get into weird situations that he, he tells stories about later, and it's like... Is it the good friends? He's yeah, he, he's a great guy. It's really weird too because he's not really a party or anything like that. He just winds winds up in weird places at three a.m. I guess. <laughs> anyway, that's another another podcast. <laughs> All right, we should do this again. It was great t- chatting with you. It was nice chatting with you as well, Gwen and uh, Chris. It was wonderful to meet you. Yeah, you too, ma'am. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I had a blast. I'm glad I was able to to join you too. All right, this has been Gwen Frey and Chris Light and Joe Mirabello, and you've been in the dialogue box.